This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for March 31st, 2017. Every Monday, I'll be bringing you brand new content, but for the next while, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with Leslie Loftus. She's a popular blogger and writer with PJ Media. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Make your view heard and get it included in the next show. Email your opinion to podcast at challengingopinions.com and we can discuss it in the next podcast. I'm joined on a Skype line by Leslie Loftus. She's an American housewife in Texas, and her blog is www.anamericanhousewifeintexas.com. Leslie, I presume you're an American housewife in Texas, is that correct? I am, I am. And uh, what inspired you to start the blog? What's your main area of interest? Actually, um, the blog originally started out as an American housewife in London. My husband and I were living in the UK, and I was writing letters home to friends about just life in London. Um, And then I also, I like politics, I like ideas, etc. So it turned into letters of stories and comparative politics and stuff. And my husband thought I should blog it. So he actually made a blog for me when we only had two children. Um, but then we got pregnant with twins. And so it took a little while for me to get that blog up and running. But by 2010, um, I was writing An American Housewife in London. And when I returned, um, that blog turned into a freelance career here in the U.S. So now I write for a couple of publications. I write for um, The Federalist and for various pages on PJ Media um, and a few other places. I think it's fair to say you take it from a conservative point of view. And I was reading one article in particular that you wrote, uh, Mothers Speak Up for Their Sons and Enrage Hardline Feminists. <laughs> one of the quotes in it seemed to me to be a little bit of a logical fallacy and I will read it out. It says, it's open to question in my mind whether women as a whole are persuaded of their civic duty to cede full rights of equality to fathers. Surely it must be obvious that women cannot be fully equal in the wider society and at work if they are also expected to be parents who take care of children most of the time. And I just think there's a huge uh, kind of fallacy there when you say it's open to question if women as a whole are persuaded women aren't a monolith many different women have many different opinions you can't really say that one woman's rights can be diminished because another woman isn't persuaded of that can you um no on that you can't and Frankly, you've hit one of the problems is that we keep trying to have a blanket prescription. Many women do have. Some women are um, very ambitious and professional. Some women are not. Um, but we keep trying to impose a monolith on them. But one of the larger fractures going on in feminism right now um, concerns women have this idea that we're supposed to do it all. Okay, so we're supposed to be successfully um, professional or professional successfully. Supposed to according to who? 
for the women of Generation X, um, we were basically raised that way. We, everything was, all of the things that were told to us was, you're going to be more than just a mother. You're going to do better than that. Um, so we were encouraged to look to our professional career first, establish, travel around, establish our profession before we even considered settling down, much less having children. Um, but then when children come along, well, we find them quite compelling and um, they're very time intensive, especially at the beginning. They require, you know, when they first come, they require all of someone's attention um, because of the biological connection between a mother and child and nursing and the physical recovery required after pregnancy, et cetera. The someone who usually dedicates most of the time to an infant um, is a mother. Um, then that time turns into um, mom just keeps doing the same infant intensive work as the baby turns into a toddler and into a child. Because for most people it and for most couples, most partners, it makes sense to have the mother do these things. Mm -hmm. But what we have found is then all of our professional success, you can't. You can't do it all, especially we like to say you can't do it all at the same time. So for 40 something years, we've been struggling with we have all of these new professional freedoms. We have these new professional goals. And how do we balance them with our desire that has remained to have a children to have children and a family? Well, hang on there. I can understand what you're saying, and I think it's probably carved on the pyramids. Uh, the children of, <laughs> of uh, today aren't like uh, our generation were. Um, but if you're saying that people, uh, women, don't want, don't find a, a structure, a role in society, that they don't find that exactly to their liking they have the freedom to do something different. I can understand that if there's kind of a general trope going around of saying that women should have it all, have a family, have a career, that can put pressure on people. But compare that to 50 or 60 years ago where women were routinely thrown out of their jobs the moment they got married. Aren't you really complaining about first world problems? Oh, we are certainly. Uh, these feminist battles right now are definitely first world problems. Um, and that's one of the things that makes them so ironic because in so much of the world that's not um, that's not the first world, we ha women still face significant problems all over the rest of the world. And we are over here arguing about um, work-life balance, um, which is in fact important to us, um, but at the same time, it's a first world, pro a first world problem. Sure. And that is one of the discussions in feminism. Should we be worrying about all of this first world problem stuff when we have women that are still being, you know, gang raped as a form of coercion? Yeah. And what I what I meant from that was that and you're right, it's largely in the first world. I was using that more as a, as a metaphor than anything else. But if uh, women in the first world in Europe, in the United States feel uh, perhaps that promotion of, for example, women in the workplace has gone a bit further than they're comfortable with. Surely that's as nothing compared to the suffering of uh, women in the third world and women in living in societies that's, that are as patriarchal as the first world was maybe 100 years ago. Oh, I agree completely. Don't you think then that that's used perhaps by some on the right uh, as a means of perhaps kicking against uh, the advancement of uh, women, be it in workplace or society? Actually, ironically, it's used mostly by women um, and feminists on the left who insist on 
um, they insist on 50-50 parity. They think that um, we don't need to be worrying about some of the other problems. And certainly, um, they don't usually say it like, oh, ignore the women being raped over in Africa. Um, they never say it quite like that. They just, in fact, do ignore these problems because they think that we will not be done here at home until we have 50% of the women in the corporate boardrooms and government, and we have 50% of dads as stay-at-home dads, which then gets back to the quote, and I believe it was Neil Linden that you were quoting in my article, because when it comes down to a practical matter then, so they want 50% of the women in the C-suites, um, they want 50% of the men at home as um, house husbands, but they're not actually willing to follow through on that. This have-it-all pressure is actually quite strong, um, for women of the 30 to 40 range, mm -hmm. uh, even for all of this discussion of we know that there's going to need to be some balance if we're going to have 50% of the women in the C-suites and 50% of the men at home, women mm -hmm. rarely actually let men participate at home. And that's where you're seeing some, you know, so you even have feminists. Um, now, um, the American Feminist Group, um, they've the National Organization out. of Women. Exactly. They have come out against um, laws that would support a rebuttable presumption of shared parenting after the divorce. So it's basically um, if you divorce, then um, the law would assume, absent any other facts, that about 50 percent of the time would be with dad and about 50 percent of the time would be with mom. Um, but feminists have resisted that, even though it would mean that the single, the now single mom um, working in the world now has primary responsibility for all of the children. In your life, in your life, would you accept, uh, um, and you can uh, state what generation or what, roughly what age you are if you choose to do that, <laughs> but would you, ex would you accept um, that you have experienced any uh, gender bi bias against you? Oh, yes, I would. Yes, I would. I'm, I'm in my um, early 40s, and I originally, my trained profession, I was an admiralty attorney. Um, and then, you know, I've been writing now for years. Um, gender bias still, still exists, yes. My point is, sure, there will be missteps uh, in the fight against that. There will be people who uh, maybe take ill-advised paths. But do you think it's, uh, you know, isn't that inevitable? Uh, it, or do you think people should simply uh, give up on uh, resisting those type of gender biases that you say you've experienced? Oh, absolutely not get up, of course. I mean, but then we'd have to also get into the kind of gender bias I've experienced, because frankly, the most gender bias um, I've experienced has been as a housewife and has been from other women. Explain. The dumbest I have been ever made to feel, the most frozen out, you know, so you start in a conversation at a cocktail party or anything else. The most time I've been frozen out of conversations, um, denied participation in anything, um, refused to be considered for, um, these wouldn't be formal promotions because I'm a freelance writer, mm -hmm. um, but refused to be considered for promotions, et cetera, um, is women resisting the fact that, well, I'm a housewife. So obviously I know nothing. Um, obviously I am not in with them on, you know, feminist concerns, either third world or first world. Um, I'm just, I'm a prop. I'm a, uh, separate wife. I'm a Stepford wife, exactly. Um, and actually, the worst I've had has been, you know, boomer women, 
once you get north of about 50 years old, if you're a professional woman, I do, when she finds out what I do, I don't expect her to even bother to speak to me again. Okay. I, I can understand that that might be an unpleasant experience, but isn't it the case that prejudice against women, the traditional sexism that perhaps was much more pervasive in society in earlier decades, even what remains of that can be far more challenging for women. Being frozen out of a conversation, of course it's not pleasant, but, uh, you know, having your boss tell me, you know, tell somebody, uh, if you don't have sex with me, you're going to be fired. If you're in a low-wage job that you need, that's a, those those things are a completely, uh, you know, on a completely different scale. Interesting, you bring that one up, because I was just having a conversation with some women about that problem. Um, the other day, and I was having a conversation with some older women. Um, so I'm going to say, no, the sexism, it still ex- exists against women, but has changed significantly. And I can use the um, sex for a job analogy. Older women, when they were propositioned, it was very direct. It was very um, in their office, being physically pressured, sleep with me if you want to keep your job. Mm-hmm. Um, for my generation, and I suspect younger at least in my experience and from my circle of friends, it has never been um, that overt. Yes, we get flirted with. Um, yes, sometimes there is the innuendo, but I have yet to see it tied to a job on the man's part. I know a lot of women who think that they need to sleep with the boss or somebody powerful in order to grease the wheels, um, but I have not heard in a long time um, a man directly or a story of a man directly saying, if you want this job or you want this promotion or you want to stay here, then you'd better hop in my bed. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that it's possible that some on the right are just flat out against women's rights and they enjoy making more of an issue than is justified uh, some of the missteps and uh, overstatements of feminists? Sorry, I'm actually considering the question, trying That's to because okay. my gut says. Um, there, you, gut you would says agree. No. You would agree. At least uh, in previous decades, there were plenty of people on the right who were flat out against women's rights, who thought women well, should be required to stay in the home and shouldn't decades, be allowed to have a job. There were plenty of people in culture that were flat yeah. out against the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was typically it was, something that it was something that was typical of the right. Uh, oh well, now we have to start to get into a little bit of the you know different ways different countries define the right um, that, that, that's, the that's a yeah. fair point that's a fair point you understand the and to an extent it might be a cliche but for sure it existed perhaps among other things do you think that it's entirely extinct or does are there any remnants of it oh i definitely don't think it's entirely extinct and i'm also sitting here racking to the extent that i've talked to um, leftist women or i've read accounts from leftist women um the real ogreish behavior seems to come from left-wing atheists. Um, like I said, it's not extinct on um, on the right. It's not extinct in culture in general, but it is much more um, subtle than it used to be. It's much more manageable than it used to be. But I don't I don't see it I don't see it in particular in particularly bad um, in American right politics. I certainly see in the media. Do, do you think? Well, hang on a second. There's there's well, for example, uh, the, what I'm thinking of when I ask that is the uh, the very, very vigorous attack on uh, contraceptive availability from the Republican Party um, 
and I'm struggling to remember her name. I'll look it up and I'll put a link to it on the page for this podcast. Uh, but one particular uh, state congresswoman who was ruled out of order and, and uh, threatened to be expelled from her chamber because she used the word vagina and it was considered to be bad language. Um, I am not familiar with that story, but I do know that um, there's a huge movement on the right and particularly within libertarians to make birth control over the counter. Um, one of the right's objections to the whole birth control debate now is having it governmentally funded. Um, as you know, um, American politics has a much, um, much more robust um, UK Republican, if you will, um, mm -hmm. you know, have the government had um, subsidiarity de devolution um, Americans are much more into those things. So one of the main objections to um, the birth control discussion in the U.S. today on the right is um, national mandates and paying through it for national insurance, et cetera. But so also, but a, also people well, like Rick, 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 people like Rick Santorum, people like Rick so Santorum. We don't have to. We can get rid of all of this red tape and just make it over the counter, so you can walk in and you can buy it as you would buy ibuprofen. That, that's a fair point, but Rick uh, Santorum, for example, uh, and others explicitly say that uh, contraception should not be available to women, full stop. Yes, but Rick Santorum is, has the major, minority position. Um, that's true, nobody but that's, that's true. He <laughs> nobody takes him seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yes. or I'm not going to yeah. say nobody, but um, the press takes Rick Santorum more seriously than the rest of us do. That's a fair point. Um, Leslie Loftus, an American housewife in Texas, thank you very much for being the first woman to speak on Challenging Opinions oh, podcast. Excellent. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. That's the Challenging Opinions podcast published on March 31st, 2017. I have links in the show notes to Leslie Loftus's blog and other writings. And do you know someone else who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd really be interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you can do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes and give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook on Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O, and you can follow Leslie Loftus at AHLondonTX. And most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use iTunes if you're an Apple person, or Google Play Music if you're on Android. There's links for both of those, and there's an RSS feed too if you're old school. You can find them all and get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Next Monday, April the 3rd, I'll have the first part of a major two-part interview. I'll be asking hard questions of Nathan D'Amigo. He's the head of the far-right, some people might say racist, group called Identity Europa. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.